Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the Free Marketeers podcast. Uh, my name is Chris, and today I'm joined by Alexander Hammond. He is the policy advisor to the Director General at the Institute for Economic Affairs. Alex, thanks for being back with us. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me back on. It's good to be here. I think the last time I spoke to you was in April when we thought uh, the lockdowns would last maybe a month, but how wrong we all turned out to be. But I'm sure you knew that the lockdowns were going to last for a very long time, given your your research insights, your policy insights. And that's the reason I, I asked you back on to get your updates on what's happening in the UK, because from this week, Thursday, um, the UK is going back into a new national lockdown. So what's going on? Why are you guys going back into lockdown? So we're going back into lockdown. Indeed, we spoke to each other in April. And I think I put forward the classic Milton Friedman quote that nothing is more permanent than a temporary government program. And yeah, we're going back in from Thursday. We are back in for four weeks of lockdown until December 2nd. And well, initially a few weeks ago when there were rumors of this, it was going to be two weeks. And now it's only four weeks. And today, Boris Johnson and yesterday, Michael Gove were doing a media, or Michael Gove was doing a media, Boris released a statement saying that potentially it could last past sec- uh, 2nd of December. So maybe you'll still have all- it on Christmas. Perhaps. Um, Christmas could be cancelled here in the UK. And they promised last time it was a one-off temporary measure. Of course, it hasn't been. The reason they're doing this because rates are increasing um, and deaths are increasing, but not near the level they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a lot of questions to be asked about why they're doing this. However, at the end of the day, there was a YouGov poll, a snap YouGov poll on Sunday, and it still showed 72% of people in England back to the new lockdown. Wow. Maybe, I mean, you know, this is a shot in the dark, but could that have anything to do with furlough schemes, stuff like that? I know the UK government has been trying to support people who might not have been able to work. So is there a a stronger, I guess, social welfare net in the UK and South Africa? They've tried to do some stimulus and that sort of thing, but the South African government is simply running out of money very quickly. I know that doesn't stop governments from just printing money necessarily, but why do you have any like conjecture about why UK citizens might support the lockdown, even after seeing what it did the first time? Well, I think it's a bit forbidden to say, but I think a lot of upper middle class and middle class people quite enjoyed being furloughed. Mm -hmm. At at its peak, 9 million Brits were furloughed, 9.3 million. And that meant 80% of the salary was being paid by the government. Right. And often the employer would top up the rest. So they're getting paid full salary to sit at home. Um, and, but the problem is it affects the poorest people the most who are now on course to lose their jobs. The, so many pubs and restaurants on our last legs, they slowly getting back to it after the last lockdown. And I think this is going to be the final blow yeah. um, for a lot of them. But yeah, furlough, I think a lot of people enjoyed it. At, at its peak in May when 9 million people were on furlough, upwards of 50% of the UK population was being bankrolled by the state after we include pensioners and um, people who work for the government in the public sector. So that's an enormous figure and that has created huge deficits um, and also it caused a huge backlog on our national health service, the Mm -hmm. NHS. In terms of economic impact, you know, of the first lockdown, I'm sure you have at least some major figures you could share with the viewers and the listeners and you know putting you in the uh, giving you the opportunity to use the the eight ball as it were to project what you think the second lockdown could cause 
Yeah, so the first lockdown cost a lot. Our deficit from uh, the financial year starting in April for the first six months of the year, so until September time, October time, um, our deficit was 246 billion pounds, um, which, so that's just six months of deficit. And that is 55% higher than the entire amount we spent in deficit in 2009 to 2010, which was obviously the financial crash mm-hmm. and was previously our biggest deficit since World War II, since 1946 oh, after the war, but same principle. Um, and yeah, if our, the, our budget deficit for the first six months of this year, if it was a sovereign country, it would have been the 46th biggest economy in the world, which <laughs> is absolutely catastrophic. And going forward, it's projected to be at least, it's going to cost at least about 320 billion, although that was before this new lockdown went into place. And Julian Jessup, who's a economics fellow at the IA, has predicted this new lockdown will cost about uh, 50 billion pounds. So we're now talking upwards of 370 billion pounds. That's bigger than the uh, South African economy, mm-hmm. just in a deficit, just yep. in one year. Um, and now our debt's also past 100% of its GDP. And, but the problem is we've still got a lot of Keynesians calling for, not necessarily for more debt, but not to worry about it because interest rates are low and this is a time of emergency, so spending should be higher. Right. Well, well, we know when windows are broken, someone needs to fix them. So I suppose that that makes sense that they wouldn't necessarily mind the increased spending. What, you know, I want to put you in the in the policy seat. Um, what would you consider more effective instead of the sort of nationwide lockdown? I mean, could you say something about the different areas of the UK where there are high rates or not? Maybe you know, we don't want to talk about any infractions on liberty, but maybe just locking down the metros or other areas. What, what do you think of that approach? Yeah, so before uh, it was announced on Saturday, we were having a tier system in the UK where okay. if you had higher levels, often up north, you'd be on tier three, which was like the most severe form okay. of lockdown all the way down to tier one. Um, and that did prove, they, tr- they did it to try and simplify things in different areas. Mm-hmm. However, it seemed to have the opposite effect because then suddenly tier four was beginning to be talked about. Bristol was thinking about tier 1.5. And, but then within tier threes, various different rules applied to different places. Um, I forgot what it was, but in some northern cities, they're all under tier three. But in some cities, you could open the gym, gyms, but in other cities, you can't. But in that city, you could send your kids to soft play, but in that city, you couldn't. And it just um, kind of got very complicated. So that's what we're trying to do beforehand. Personally, I think the best approach could be to try and shield the most vulnerable in our society. Um, The problem with this lockdown is I don't understand what is the end strategy here. A a, a month lockdown, what, it's going to push the virus back by six weeks a month, two months? It's, and then what? When we're going to hit the middle or probably towards the end of January. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to do it again until the vaccine is here. And then the vaccine might not even be effective. We don't know. And we don't know how long it could take to roll out. And that will just put even more pressure on the NHS. Mm-hmm. In terms of that end goal, I think you raise an important point because it felt like worldwide, you know, we were told, okay, let's do this. Let's do the lockdown for a few months or a few weeks to prepare the emergency, the health services, for example, or let's do it so that 
the sector could prepare and that one could prepare and that kind of thing. It won't be, you know, um, it don't just be ad infinitum forever. So speaking of the NHS, you know, is there, is there reason or precedence that all of this is placing a lot of strain on the NHS and maybe that's what government is thinking now. Let's again break for four weeks or not break. Let's lock down for four weeks, break from economic activity because of course you can just switch off the economy and then like give the NHS time to build up its, its resources and, and stuff like that. Again, I know you Brits love talking about the NHS. We do. It's a national pastime. Um, but with the NHS, I, I don't have the exact figures on the beds, but it was not nearly overwhelmed. Okay. We, we, we quickly set up a lot of uh, Nightingale hospitals, which are huge, basically turning arenas into hospitals. Okay. And, and several of them just weren't used. We had thousands of beds. We, we weren't nearly overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. But we bought into lockdown last time for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because we didn't know how deadly this virus was going to be. Sure. We didn't know a lot about it. We didn't know very much how to treat it. And we thought we had to protect the NHS. But mm -hmm. now we know the um, mortality rate is only about 0.2%, um, which is still a big worry. But the oh, average of age of people who are dying from it is uh, it's about 82, I think, in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, slightly above life expectancy. And we've improved a lot on how to tackle it since then. We know vitamin D plays a big part. We also know that um, I think there's different steroids you can use now. Mm -hmm. And maybe if putting people on ventilators too early wasn't the best idea. Right. Cancer Research UK has recently found that over 350,000 people have missed out on urgent referrals to hospital on suspect, suspicion of cancer. Um, and is that, and been, sorry, is that because, do you think that's because people are scared of going, you know, to their normal appointments or is it because, you know, uh, doctors, specialists, that sort of thing, have they simply said they won't offer those services for the time being? So people aren't going in nearly as high amount of numbers about there's been about 27 million fewer hmm. app GP appointments um, since the pandemic. Okay. And then also there's a huge backlog waiting for the NHS. I've, right, right. Personally, I, I've been waiting for an urgent appointment for months and there's no, uh, no idea when it's going to happen. But then if we look at other things related to lockdown and people's health, especially looking at things like suicide, there's been a huge spike. We, it's hard to know the exact numbers because the numbers are released yearly, but looking at local authorities, suicide numbers and attempts have more than doubled in London. Um, so a few days ago, they, they're experiencing about 37 an average a day, whereas just eight people were dying of COVID-19 in London during the same time. Hmm. But then if we look at something even more tragic is as opposed to looking life for life, hmm. we look at life years and Last year, there were 6,000 suicides in the UK mm -hmm. and the average age was about 37 years old. Whereas the average age, COVID age, as we said, is 82. Right. So if suicides rose by just 50%, they're looking to rise, seems like they're going to rise above that. But even if it was just 50%, the number of years of life lost would be equivalent to about 120,000 um, people dying from COVID. So... And currently we're on about 40,000 deaths from COVID and it's not going to rise by 50%. It's, it seems like it's been doubling or it seems like it's doubled. Right. So we're looking more like 240,000 from COVID to equate to the years of life lost from suicide. And there's so many other things like when we look at the five-year average of people with Alzheimer's and dementia dying in their home, it's up 79%, heart disease up by 25%. Parkinson's by 70%. Uh, 
so I think it's really time we take a step, step back and look at both the economic, but more importantly, the human consequences of lockdown. It's not just about COVID. It's about so many people, especially in bi- young people in big cities who are hit hardest by lockdown of, of the jobs lost since the beginning of March. Um, 60% of them have been between 16 and 24 year old, four year olds. So it's not a pretty picture, but we definitely need to stop. We need to just reevaluate what we're doing in regards to lockdown because in other areas of human health are getting worse and the economy is getting worse and the deficit is just going up and up and up. On that point of, of young people losing their jobs and their future prospects, you know, I'll, I'll link this back to something you touched on earlier about the UK's uh, debt uh, trajectory. You know, what can you, what can you predict as it were about the UK economy in the long run and, you know, people's prospects? Because I think in many ways, big government spending is always deferred onto the shoulders of future generations, but it feels like the lockdowns are just exacerbating that problem. Um, the debt, the debt problem is just being deferred to the next few decades. And we're telling younger people, you know, you all, you have to lock down along with people who are more vulnerable to the virus and uh, your future prospects are being wiped out. Yeah. And so we've got this huge debt mounting and the classic argument, as I touched on earlier, is a lot of Keynesians kind of think that this big, having a big debt and deficit is actually okay in the short term. Um, right. It is a one-off emergency and low interest rates are low. And that's the argument you hear quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, interest rates are low, so it doesn't actually matter too much if we um, rack up a big deficit. But that, that's incorrect um, because paying off debt isn't just dependent on interest rates. It's also right. dependent on good economic growth, which we don't have at all. We're, our GDP is going to decline about 10% this year. But even in the last 10 years before COVID, it's only grown by about 1.8%. So we don't have a good economic growth. You also need a higher level of inflation. Currently, it's on about 0.2% from, in September. So we don't have that either. And you also need a fiscal surplus, right, right. <laughs> but most importantly. Um, and we haven't had a fiscal surplus since 2001. Hmm. And then they look back at history and say, oh, yeah, but after the Napoleonic Wars, after World War II, we were fine paying off these big debts. But the problem with that is that after 1945, real economic growth was pretty high. Okay. And also inflation was very high. And then the Napoleonic Wars going e- even further back. Um, it was quite high growth afterwards. And they also were able to get a large fiscal surplus. But that's a lot easier to have a large fiscal surplus when government is only spending 5% of your GDP, right, of as course. opposed to a predicted, I think it's 54% this year. And I'm guessing no one from, I mean, I might be not giving the UK government enough credit here, but I'm guessing no one has said as a policy response to all this, okay, let, let's do lockdown now for the second time. And once we get out of it, we're going to slash income tax, we're going to slash corporate tax, we're going to cut government spending, any of that? I mean, there's one or two lone voices okay. in parliament doing that, but it's not the popular view right it's it's kind of some people believe we should raise taxes after to pay for it but rishi sunak our chancellor has hinted that that the tax rises will come in the medium to long term so not in the short term but who knows what medium term is is that is that six months or is that uh five years but the problem with that again is that our tax burden is already at a 50-year high 
Okay. Um, and currently, the bottom 10% of pe- households pay upwards of 47% of their income, of their gross income in taxes, if you consider various things like VAT and uh, fuel duties, things cool. like as that, as well as their income, national insurance. And that has increased by 10% since 2008. So it was on 37%. Mm. So we can't tax anymore. We're already at the biggest um, tax burden in 50 years. So it seems the, the solution to get rid of the, to lower the debt and the deficit in time is through lower government spending. Mm. And that seems to be the clear solution. And hopefully that will come soon, but I'm not optimistic based on the response to the coronavirus so far. I'm putting you on the spot here. This isn't something we, we sort of touched on in terms of topics and stuff, but off the top of your head, do you know how uh, UK parliamentarians, government officials, how their salaries compare with people around the world? Is it comparatively high or low? Any sort of idea there? Well, compared to the rest of the world, it would be very high. Okay. In the UK, I think we're about, it works out about 2.3 times average incomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, they are quite well compensated. And yeah, they're been not a doing new... too badly. Huh? Yeah, and, and there's also a lot of expenses as well. Sure. Um, so they get a, a fair few things paid for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there has been some, um, there's been a recent petition recently. I think it was launched by Richard Tice, who helped Nigel Farage from the Brexit party. Okay. And um, it's calling for the MPs to have a pay cut, which matches the furlough. So 80% <laughs> of their income. Um, because recently MPs are having a pay rise. However, it should be said that's not actually their decision. It's okay. an independent body who comes up with that. And several of them, especially the more free marketeer conservatives, are against it. Sure. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, one thing that could possibly help the UK economy going forward is trading with uh, arguably your biggest partner, the United States of America. Uh, Tomorrow, um, and we're recording this on the 2nd of November, so on the 3rd of November, we have the small matter of the U.S. election for this year coming up. Uh, President Trump, the incumbent against uh, the Democrat, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. Um, Alex, depending on how it checks out, how do you think whoever wins would have an impact on trade, on U.S. trade with the U.K.? Of course, the U.K., never mind the pandemic, but it's also... The UK is still in the middle of Brexit. Um, just your your broad views on on that whole scenario and how it shakes out. Yeah, so currently the Department for International Trade have been in the middle of trying to create a trade deal with the United States. Okay, they were initially optimistic that it could be done before the election, but of course it won't now. Um, but I think I think to answer that question, it's actually interesting to look at the candidates' stances on Brexit in the first place, not just for trade deal, but on oh. Brexit. And Trump has always been pro-Brexit. He's right. always called, he's called himself Mr. Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, he was, when the election was, uh, results came in on June, in June 2016, Trump was in Scotland saying, oh, this would be a great thing for the UK. Right. Whereas at the same time, uh, Biden was at Trinity College in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was basically, he said, quote, we'd prefer a different outcome. So he's not in favor right. of it from the start. But I think the problem if Biden was to win for Boris Johnson is that Biden has kind of bought into the narrative from team Trump that Brexit and therefore by extension, Boris and Mm -hmm. Trump are one in the same. And that's what 
Donald Trump's junior uh, has said. He wrote an article for Telegraph calling them Brexit and Trump one and the same. Um, and yeah, Trump has also called Boris uh, Britain Trump, not Britain's <laughs> Trump, Britain Trump. Um, and then Biden has, has seen that. And a few months later, he then called uh, Trump and Boris basically a clone of each other. Okay. Whereas that isn't quite the truth. Um, yeah, but don't let, the, got, don't let the facts get in the way of a good narrative, you know. <laughs> oh, dear. And, but that's, that's kind of where we're at. So in regards to a deal, if Trump was elected, I assume we'll continue the existing deal negotiations. Mm -hmm. However, Trump's unpredictable. We don't sure. know if he's going to suddenly add a sporadic tariff on Scotch whiskey like he did a few months ago. And we don't know what else he could just randomly add tariffs on. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Biden... I, I don't know why he'd prioritize the UK unless we were very, very close and it took very little effort to create the deal. Right. Um, he's already threatened he won't do a trade deal if uh, the Good Friday Agreement with Northern Ireland and uh, Ireland is compromised in any way. And I think a US-EU trade deal would probably be more likely under Biden. Mm -hmm. But so that's a good thing, I guess, for the UK, likely if Trump was to win, would, the trade deal will likely go ahead. Okay. However, a Biden victory would actually mean we've got a closer friend on like the more international world stage. If we're thinking of things like the UN, the WTO, right. the Paris Accord, um, Trump has pulled out, is cutting his funding for the WTO, pulled out of the Paris Accord, which actually America's pulling out of the Paris Accord goes into place the day after the election. So Biden would go and is back that, into that. So, sorry, is that irreversible regardless of who wins? No, I think they can go back. Oh, okay, it. okay. Uh, I think if Biden got elected and wanted to go back in, he could. Biden will get on the phone quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. And also, Biden wouldn't threaten to pull out things like NATO. Sure. So whether it's right or wrong, Britain does actually agree with a lot of those international organizations and agreements. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, we would have a better friend on the world stage. But for the deal, I don't think it would um, be very productive with a biden administration okay and that's partly down to the fact biden's always been very had a, had a big affinity for the irish i think i think it comes down to that he's very pro-irish okay. hugely proud of his roots and i think the democrats and the irish have had a quite mm -hmm. a big connection back back to kennedy really mm -hmm. um and then just going a bit wider because you of course have written quite a bit on on trade especially trade in africa um depending on who wins uh, the election do you have any insights to offer about the u.s's relationships with africa with the, the african union that sort of thing i've been trying to look at um, implications for things like a goa and that sort of thing with south africa that agreement that south africa has with the u.s but do you have any thoughts around the u.s and africa going forward Yes, a few. So under the, Bi under, sorry, under the Obama administration, they, their approach to Africa, they did, the United States Trade Representative um, released a report. And in the report, they basically said they're having a lot of difficulty negotiating with each and every small African economy at once, because each one requires a huge trade delegation, right, right. Uh, lots of weeks and, or months and months of negotiations. And they said it would be preferable if they could kind of trade with uh, several countries at once. Uh -huh. And then Trump actually seems to 
actually agree with that. It seems to be one Obama thing that happened under Obama that Trump is in favor of. And he went with the Africa strategy, which is trade, uh, not aid. Right, right. So I think both sides are actually in favor of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, especially if it does mean down the line it's easier for the US to negotiate um, African trade deals mm -hmm. and potentially with uh, the entire con uh, continent. But in regards to Biden, I don't quite know what his stance is. Oh. Um, I imagine it'd be very similar to Obama's, probably a lot of aid and those special agreements like AGOA. Mm -hmm. However, some could argue the AGOA agreement should be replaced by a more comprehensive and less flexible yeah, um, could be. trade agreement. And mm -hmm. I, I think Trump would be probably in favor of that. Yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I, of course, hope... Never mind other concerns one might have around the, the Africa Free Trade Agreement, as if it can just get implemented in some form at some point, which I know they're saying um, early next year. But of course, with the pandemic, these things might get pushed further back and governments have to focus on, on I guess, the pandemic response. Um, otherwise, they'll be accused of callousness and all sorts of other stuff by their they're citizens, so they're in a bit of a, a hard place. Mm -hmm. Not that we can give them too much leeway. They, I mean, they want to be involved in everything. So, <laughs> yeah, indeed. But we should we should definitely consider the fact that African continental free trade area would be an enormous boost yes. for the economy in recovering from COVID nineteen. Mm -hmm. um, the U, the World Bank released a report back in late July, and they mm -hmm. found that by twenty thirty five, if all all countries had agreed to it and ratified it it could mean 30 million fewer people in extreme poverty just because mm. of that agreement which is amazing that's that's pushing about what five to ten percent of people in extreme poverty yeah. in sub-saharan africa mm -hmm. so that in itself is amazing and i think we should bear in mind that the brookings foundation as well has done a lot of calculations showing that if the free trade area was theoretically, theoretically implemented right now and all countries were signed on, it would reduce Africa's overall burden or uh, impact of COVID-19 by, by about 3 or 4%, wow. which, do, which, which, which isn't a lot. That's the difference between millions of people going back into extreme mm -hmm. poverty or not. So I know it gets pushed to the back of the line quite often, um, and that's what happened in July when it was going to go into place. But right fingers crossed some form of it goes into place in january 1st when it's going to be when it's meant to enter into, enter into force but if not we just need to keep pushing and trying to get it over the line because mm -hmm. once it's in place it can, it can then be amended it can then have further countries signed on yeah, and ratified yeah. but until that point uh we need to keep making a good case for it mm -hmm. no i agree completely i think someone we're both familiar with whose work we followed johan norberg i mean he's written extensively on uh, the benefits of trade and innovation, that sort of thing. You yourself have done work with human progress. And I think, you know, it's easy to, te to tear stuff down and destroy things overnight, as we've seen with the lockdown. Just stopping economic activity leads to widespread destruction. But it takes long to build stuff up and to get the economy going, to trade. And those ripple effects take a while to permeate. And we need stuff like the Africa Free Trade Agreement in place to at least grease the wheels a little bit and it'll become a snowball effect one can hope yeah it definitely um, will. yeah i think alex we've we've covered pretty much everything that we we sort of uh, set out to do 
I wish you the best of luck with the second lockdown, um, maybe South Africa. There have been rumblings that we might go into lockdown again. Government's worried about the rise of cases, but I think even our government realizes the economy is such an, in such a perilous state, you simply can't do it now. And with our rising joblessness, which is probably around 42% now on the expanded definition, you can't mess around with this sort of stuff anymore. So maybe we'll be spared that. Um, but enjoy the, uh, enjoy the election uh, coverage and all the news tomorrow i'm sure all the viewers and listeners will do so as well it seems whenever there's a u.s election the whole world focuses on that for a little bit so let's see how it shakes out and hopefully um the results of it regardless of who wins uh, are better for sort of world trade uh, and and free markets free ideals going forward but i guess we'll have to see how all of that shapes out but thanks alex for your time and your insights we always appreciate it um, to all the viewers and listeners, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Uh, if you enjoyed this video, please like, share, and subscribe. You can also find all of our work at the Free Market Foundation on our website, all of our articles, media releases, reports. Please read those and share them. We greatly value your support, especially during this year, this year of upheaval, of a pandemic, and of lockdown. It means a lot to us, and we truly appreciate that. But for now, I'll call it a day. Um, Keep well out there, stay safe, and we'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye-bye.